Hey, good morning. It's so good to be here. And I love your pastors, Pastor Greg and Amber. They are um, just amazing friends, and you guys have an amazing church. And I'm thrilled and honored to be able to be with you today to share a little bit of my story, my family, and I of uh, some things that we've been through that God has redeemed. And I wanted to um, just highlight something from our, our lives just this past week. Uh, on Thursday, just this past Thursday, October 26th, my wife and I celebrated our 27th wedding anniversary. 27 years of marriage. And thank you. And God, by God's grace, we've been married that long. And uh, there's a picture from our wedding day. We're just little babies, just babies then. And uh, this picture was taken right before the wedding ceremony. And when I look at a picture, especially an old picture, what I always try and do is think about what was I thinking about at that moment? What did I know up until that moment? And then what did I not know about? Because it's like there's always those things that we think we know everything, but then it's like what did I not know that I didn't know? And when I look at this picture, the evening of our wedding, it was a Saturday evening, I imagine, you're going to have to imagine with me, what would have happened if a prophet from God came up to me, let's just say just who has 100% accuracy, came up to me and was going to tell me everything that was going to happen in my life over the next 27 years. And if he would have started, now all these things I'm going to tell you are absolutely true. The prophet didn't say this, but just let's play along. This prophet comes up to me and says, you're getting married right now to the woman of your dreams. You're going to get married, but in the middle of the night, an intruder is going to break into your in-law's home. Your father-in-law, who's a pastor, who's officiating your wedding ceremony, a man is going to break into their home and is going to shoot him in bed with a 12-gauge shotgun, a slug right to the chest. It's going to be an attempted murder on your wedding night, and instead of going on your honeymoon tomorrow, you're going to spend the next 10 days sleeping on the waiting room floor of a hospital, not knowing if he's going to live or die. You're both going to, both you and your new wife, your new bride are going to be suffering from PTSD and shock and depression because this man is not going to ever be caught. And so you're going to have that fear of wondering, is your father going to live or going to die? And then you're going to move from Michigan to the Twin Cities, but your wife is not going to want to go. She's going to want to stay with her family. She's going to cry the entire drive to the Twin Cities. Once you get there, you're going to be serving at a church, hopefully going on staff there, because you're about to get credentialed as a minister. But behind the scenes, you and your wife are going to be fighting and arguing and just suffering with all the trauma of your wedding night. And six months into your marriage, you will separate. There's going to be things in your life that are going to come to light. You, you would have just been credentialed as a minister the month before, but at that six-month point, it's all going to fall apart. And it's going to be revealed that you're a closet alcoholic, a severe alcoholic. Your wife's going to leave you. You'll have to turn in your credentials as a minister. Your lifelong dream as an occupation, as a calling, is going to fizzle. You're going to have to tell your parents and your friends and your family and your pastor of what's been going on in your life. They're all going to reach out to you with help, but you're going to reject all that help. You're going to reject God, and you're going to turn the other direction and run away from God and go down a dark path of alcoholism, addiction, and running from God. And that will continue, and you will go, Joe, to places that you could not possibly imagine, the darkness that you will face and the despair. In fact, every morning you will wake up hungover, and the first thought that will come to your mind will be suicide. And you'll get to a point where it will be so bad, it will be so devastating, that you will realize that you're either going to drink yourself to death, kill yourself, or somehow get help. And so you'll check yourself into a 
You don't want to go to a, a God treatment center. You don't want to go to Teen Challenge or a Bible-based one. But you go to Hazelden Treatment Facility because you realize it's the best in the world and that you believe that they're going to medically fix you some way. And you get there and you're going to quickly realize that they don't have a pill for this, that they're not going to give you shock therapy or lobotomy, they're somehow medically fix you, that the only hope that you have is found in Jesus Christ. And that is going to pull the rug out from underneath you where you're going to realize there's nowhere else to turn but to Jesus. And on April 17th, 1999, you'll get on your knees and surrender to Jesus and you will never take a drink again. You'll still have to work through the program and through the steps and you'll be involved in AA and you'll be involved in recovery groups, but you will follow Jesus and he'll give you enough grace for every moment and none more. And at a year of sobriety, God is going to do the remarkable Against all odds, he will restore your marriage. After being separated for two years and ten months, when everyone had given up on you, nobody had any hope, God will bring you back together. And when he brings you back together, you'll barely know each other. You won't love each other, and you won't really even like each other, but he'll take a step of obedience and faith, and he'll breathe life back into your marriage that once was dead. And you will then fall madly in love with each other once again. And he'll restore that marriage and you'll be attending church and working on getting your ministry credentials restored. Back together where you're sober, your marriage is restored, you're headed towards ministry. A dream of your wife where she wants to be a mom more than anything else, you'll start pursuing that and she'll get pregnant right away. And you'll be so excited, you'll pick out the room and the color of the paint and the crib, and you'll get everything all set up. And then, horrifically, tragically, you'll have a miscarriage. And it'll hurt so bad. Because you'll question, are we cursed? How could this happen to us? Look at God, how we're serving you and following you, and I'm sober and we're pursuing ministry. Why could you let this happen? And you'll try again and have a second miscarriage, and try a third time and have a miscarriage, and you'll just be struggling with that so deeply and so wounded. But then God will even redeem that pain and he'll lead you to adopting. And you will go from going to an orientation about adoption just to inquire to when you fly to North Carolina to pick up your baby girl in a six-week span. It'll be the fastest adoption they've ever had between these two states and those agencies. And you'll bring home your baby girl on Mother's Day 2003. And then one year later, you'll start the process again. It'll come about so quickly, so miraculously, you'll set your own record. And from beginning to end, it'll only take three weeks for you to fly and pick up your baby boy and bring him home on Father's Day 2004. And you'll have a, a baby girl and a baby boy and your home will be filled and you'll be so just enjoying the laughter and the love and you'll be in full-time ministry now, fulfilling your call as your wife is fulfilling her call as being a mother. And then your wife will start feeling sick especially in the morning, in fact, every morning, and you realize that she's pregnant and you'll be so excited, but also be filled with some fear and trepidation because this hasn't really equated a lot of joy in the past, but everything will go perfectly and she'll give birth to a baby girl and you will find yourselves going from having zero children to having three babies in 23 months. <laughs> and you'll be so excited and so thankful and you'll be working as a full-time pastor for years and, and helping other people with adoption, helping people in recovery, helping people find Jesus. And then God will move on your heart that your family's not complete yet. And it, he will just miraculously orchestrate some events that you'll be led to adopt twin baby boys at an orphanage in Haiti. And you'll start that process. And you'll think, of course it's going to go fast for us because it always does. But this time, it'll go painfully slow. 
It'll take almost three years to bring these boys home, and they'll be over three years old when you bring them into your home, and you'll quickly find out that one of them is suffering from severe RAD, severe reactive attachment disorder, where some of the symptoms of this are fascination with blood, with gore, with fire, with sharp objects, and death. And you will see just the deepest, darkest psychological wounds and displays of demonic activity in his lives that you never had seen before, would imagine that you'd see that in your own home. And you'll throw everything at this little boy, your son, to get him healing and help. You'll go to every psychiatrist. You'll go to the the Mayo Clinic. You'll go to every counselor, every psychologist. You'll look at what medicine can provide. You'll go to every deliverance ministry, every missionary that has some experience with the demonic. You'll try everything and, and hit every area psychologically, physically, spiritually to try and get him help. It'll nearly tear your marriage and your family to pieces, but after almost three years of trying everything, you'll be left with no other options other than to do something that goes against every fiber of your being and your DNA as a man of God, as a parent, as a dad, as a husband, as an advocate for adoption, is that you will have to relinquish your parental rights to that little boy, and he will leave your home forever. And it will wound you in a way that you never thought you could be touched or wounded. You'll forever be scarred by that pain and that loss, but even in the midst of that, in the confusion of that, In the heartbreak of that, you'll see that God is good and he still redeems our pain. And you'll go through that and after that you'll see God's healing power gradually work through your family and your kids flourishing and serving God in ministry. But then you'll feel called to move to Florida and you'll go there and you'll experience the latest chapter of pain in your life and how God redeems that. And then in October of the year 2023, you'll be called to go and preach at this church called Zoe Church and tell the good people of that church on how God can redeem their pain. Now remember, that would all be like a prophecy told to me on this day. And how many of you are like me where about a third of the way through, you would just turn and run out of the church? You'd say, I'm out. I can't handle this. This is too much. And aren't you thankful that God doesn't send a prophet to you and tell you all the pain that you'll face, all the problems? Because if he did, it would be crippling. It'd be paralyzing. In fact, we would only focus on the negative to such a degree that we wouldn't want to even move forward. And we need to remember that God is good and he always redeems through Jesus when we allow him to. There's a a verse, well, first of all, let me show you an updated picture of my family so you know who I'm talking about. This is our family just from this last Christmas. And so I'm Joe, my wife, Jen, Our oldest daughter, Jojo, who's 20, and she has pretty severe autism, and so she lives with us and will live with us the rest of our lives. She's very involved in Special Olympics. Our son, Joey Jr., JJ, who is a sophomore at North Central University. Our daughter, Jada, who is uh, 18. She's a freshman at North Central University. And then our youngest, Johnny Cakes, who's 13, Johnny. And, And then we have two dogs, Jeffrey and Gemma. So our whole family is Joe, Jen, Jojo, Joey, Jada, Johnny, Jeffrey, Gemma. And at the center of it all is... Jesus, okay? And people joke about naming all our kids with J's and the family, and I always tell them, like, once you start with that, how can you not continue? Because if you name a kid Larry in the midst of that, they'll have a complex and think you don't love them. So that's our family. When I look at my family, I just think of the word redemption and how God redeems, and he takes what was meant for harm or what was meant for bad and turns it around for our good and for God's glory. 
And there's a, a passage in Psalm that talks about redemption. It's Psalm 107, verses one through three. And it says, give thanks to the Lord. And this is a song. Like these words are in a song. So sometimes psalms that have been turned to songs we're so familiar with them that we don't stop and really think of the meaning of the words. So let this sink in. They give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And just that part right there, if you take anything from what I'm saying here today, my prayer is that you would realize, believe, let it penetrate your heart and your soul, that God is good. He's nothing but good. In fact, I think that if we did a test right now and handed out little pieces of paper that said, true or false, God is good. I believe that almost everyone here would check true, because intellectually we know that or believe that or, or have heard that. But if we were really to look in everyone's heart at this moment, I think that the, the facts would be that many here today would be struggling with really believing that God is good with what you're going through, because maybe you have things that haven't been answered, or you're struggling in the midst of pain that hasn't been resolved or healed, or, or God, how can this be good? But we need to stand on his promises and his truth that God is good. He's nothing but good. It's impossible for him to be bad. He's not out to trick us or to punk us or to prank us or to make life miserable for us. But he is good. And his love endures forever. Not just part of the time or temporarily, but eternally his love endures. Let the redeemed, those who've been changed by the power of God through Jesus Christ, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story, those who are redeemed from the hand of the foe, those he gathered from the lands, from the east, from the west, from the north, and the south. And so I want to update on the latest chapter of our lives, in my family, of what, how God has redeemed just some pain that's very, very um, close to my heart. And it was in the, the winter of 2020, right as COVID was starting, we felt, as a family, a geographic calling to move to Southwest Florida. And I know everyone in Minnesota feels that in February and March. It's just like, here I am, Lord, send me, I'll go, you know. But it was more than that. We'd lived here our entire lives. I've been in the South Metro. I've been a pastor at this church in St. Paul, a great church for eight years. My kids were in high school and junior high, and they had been in sports and friendships and um, connections all their lives, all my life. It was, a, it was a big thought to even think about moving. But we just felt this growing call that we were supposed to move there. Much, what I assume, much like what I assume a missionary feels when they're called to a, a geographic location. We didn't know how it was going to happen. We were praying about it. And then God just miraculously started opening doors to this particular church in Fort Myers. And it was as if there was a road from the Twin Cities to Fort Myers that was just one green light after another. And so we moved. We leveraged everything. Um, it was a huge financial sacrifice. It was a sacrifice relationally. Everything picked up our family and moved in October of 2020, right at the start of two of my kids' senior year, another junior year of high school. And so we went there as a step of faith. And we got there and began to serve in this church. And I quickly started realizing that all those green lights started turning to yellow and then turned to red lights because it was a terrible fit for my family, for my kids, for my wife, for me. It was not at all what I had been promised or expected. And I was wrestling with that during that time, like, well, God, I know you called us here, but how can this be? And it was at the one-year mark, I realized that there was not a path forward for me to be there, and I had to resign. And so I made the very difficult decision, it was a new step of faith, to resign and say, God, I want to honor you, and I'm going to step out in faith and resign. It was Thanksgiving of 2021. 
I resigned from my position. Now, we had sacrificed so much money and finances and everything to go there that I didn't have a backup plan. I didn't have another job lined up. I mean, this was a terrible time for us to even think about moving at that time of the year in the school calendar. Um, I didn't have the six to 12 month emergency fund saved up. Sorry, Dave Ramsey, I didn't do it, didn't have it. And, um, but I just thought like, well, God's gonna come through. Some, some way, somehow he's gonna come through. And so I'm waiting, God, give me an answer. Give me a calling, where are you gonna send us? I'll go be a martyr for you, I'll go be a missionary, I'll go plant a church, just tell me what to do. And I heard silence. And I struggled with that over those next several days after I resigned. And there's a verse that is probably the second most famous verse in the Bible, Romans 8, 28. Right after John 3, 16. People hear this all the time and quote it all the time. And it's Romans 8, 28. I think we're going to have it on the screen. And it says that, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Now that is a great verse to quote when you're going through a good time in life and someone else is going through a bad time. Like when you're having a great morning and that verse is on your coffee cup, you can sing praises and sip from that and be like, God is good and he works all things for you. But that is a tough drink to swallow when you're facing a problem. Even Jesus in the garden said, Father, before he was going to go and be crucified, he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass before me. And I think one of the struggles we have is that when we read this, when we think about this, when we're going through a trouble, we say, okay, God, I think you and I have a very different opinion and definition of what good is. Because I just don't see how this can be good. And it's hard to reconcile and to really understand that his ways are better than ours. I was at that place. So resigned on, on Thanksgiving of 2021. Over those next two weeks, I was struggling. I was praying. Wasn't hearing from God. I began to feel abandoned. My kids were at an age, ages where they understood the financial struggle that we were in. Single income family, and now I don't have an income. So they're saying like, hey dad, are we gonna have Christmas presents? Hey dad, are you gonna help me buy a car? Hey dad, are we gonna have to move? Hey dad, are we gonna be able to like have a graduation party? And behind the scenes, I'm praying to my heavenly father saying, hey dad, I got a mortgage payment coming up. Hey dad, are we gonna have to move? Hey dad, just tell me something. Hey, Dad, do you see what this could potentially do to my kids? And I wasn't hearing an answer. And I got really stressed out by this. And I wasn't handling it very well. And it was December 14th, just two weeks after I resigned. I'd been up all night, hadn't slept a wink, hadn't been eating well at all. I was fasting and praying and just kind of wrestling with God. And uh, that morning, I knew that if I stayed around the house because I was just feeling ornery and tired and hungry and that I was going to probably get in an argument with my wife, you know, there's... In, in AA and recovery, there's a lot of acronyms. And one that um, is like really like well-known is HALT. And that's don't let yourself get hungry, angry, lonely, and tired at the same time because you'll make a bad decision. Well, I decided I was going to go to the gym that morning. No sleep, no food, and I thought, I'm just going to drink a big glass of pre-workout energy drink. So I took the powder, I mixed it. It was like the kind of pre-workout packed with creatine, tons of caffeine, some kind of like illegal root from Africa that makes your skin tingle. And all that, I drank that. I go to the gym because I'm going to just blow off some steam and I just figured, you know what, if I'm going to be unemployed, I might as well get jacked, you know, and go work out. <laughs> so I go to the gym and I'm there like five minutes and I start getting this like real dreamy feeling, like almost an out-of-body experience. And something internally was just telling me like, go home go home, something's not right. And so I walked out and I said goodbye to the guy at the counter and I went out and I got into our 
Honda Odyssey minivan, like the safest vehicle created. Um, and I don't remember anything, anything once I walked out of the gym. But I got in the vehicle, drove out of the parking lot to a stop sign. And I, I stopped at the stop sign for about a minute, which is a long time to stop. And I started to have what the doctors called a stress-induced seizure. Had never had one before, haven't had one since. But it caused me, as I began to convulse, to jam my right foot into the gas pedal. And I went flying through the intersection, into a parking lot, hit a, a curb median, went airborne head-on into a tree, and then went sideways into a building, crashed in a building that was a home health care center filled with nurses. Well, it was such a loud bang and force that they thought a bomb had gone off, and they ran out, the nurses, and the van was smoking, so they had a fire extinguisher. They could see I was still having a seizure and convulsing, so I was trapped in the vehicle. Thankfully, the fire department got there very quickly, and they used the jaws of life to cut open the door, put a neck brace on me and a backboard, and pull me out, put me in the ambulance. I don't remember any of this. I get in the ambulance, and they're rushing me to the hospital. Well, I wake up in the ambulance not knowing that I'd even been in a car accident, and my first thought was that I had been abducted, that I thought I was kidnapped. I mean, I've seen Jack Reacher, The Terminal List, Jason Bourne. I knew this day was coming, you know? There's, there's a saying that just because you're paranoid doesn't mean that people are not out to get you, okay? And so I started throwing fists. I'm like punching at these guys, and they're like, no, 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 settle down. You've been hurt really badly. Stop moving. You were in a car accident. I'm like, car accident? And it's like sinking in, that like my neck has got a brace on. And then I, the pain started, I started becoming aware of that. And I'm feeling excruciating pain. And I look down and one of the paramedics is holding my right leg up and my right foot is completely turned in sideways, dislocated. Because I was pressing so hard on the gas pedal, uh, gas pedal with the seizure that it dislocated. And I felt that just hot, fiery, searing pain, and I was begging with him, just instinctively, put it back in the socket, please put it back in, Julian, please do something. And he's like, I can't, only a doctor can do it. And I just kept begging him. He looked at one of the other paramedics, he gave him a little nod, and the guy like took my ankle and did like a judo move on it and popped it back in the socket. I just passed out, completely unconscious. The next thing I realize, I, I start waking up, is they're wheeling me in to the emergency room. Uh, well, first of all, let me just show you a picture of the, the car. So that was the car um, after the accident. And um, actually, my wife took this picture. And the next day when she went to like, the places being stored, the guy said, I'm sorry for your loss, because he thought I was killed in the car accident. And so um, the next picture of, is of me when I get to the hospital. And I was messed up. Like They're wheeling me in. And I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this, but it's nightmarish. It's, it's so surreal, because you didn't expect this. And, they're like hooking me up to things and putting things on my mouth and my chest. And the one nurse has these scissors and is like starting to cut off my clothes. And this sounds really petty, but I had just purchased brand new Lululemon shorts, okay? <laughs> and I'm like, hey, don't cut those shorts. They're Lululemon, please. Just... And she's like, buddy, you got way bigger problems than Lululemon. <laughs> like those shorts are coming off. And uh, so they're cutting off my clothes and they, they start putting me through all kinds of tests and body scans and everything. And the, uh, the head surgeon, he comes in and he wants to check me out and go over some details. But first of all, he took like a metal poker and he had like a really like kind of ominous look on his face. And he, want, he goes, I want to see if you have any feel. And he's poking me in my leg in different places. Like, yeah, I can feel, I can feel, I can feel it. And he goes, you really can. And I'm like, yeah. And he didn't believe me. 
And so he had a nurse hold a towel in front of my face and did it. I'm like, yeah, I can feel it. He's like, oh, I guess you can. He was like, well, um, you're really messed up. He goes, your foot was dislocated. It's broken two places. Two of your ribs are broken. You've got like liver and kidney issues. Those numbers are off the charts. Um, he goes, your neck is broken in two places and your spine is really bad. He goes, I can't believe you have feeling in your legs. He goes, three of your vertebrae exploded. A number of other ones are cracked. Like up to 12 of them are cracked. And he goes, he put his hand on my shoulder. Uh, he goes, it's really bad, and I'm not going to be able to help you. Which is not what you want to hear, okay? Like there's certain professions where you want them to have like a level of confidence that borders on arrogance or cockiness, like, like make me believe in you, you know? And it, with the surgeon, you want them to be like a fighter pilot. This is like my Top Gun moment. I need Maverick, and I got Rooster as my helper, you know? <laughs> and uh, he said, I can't help you. Um, but there's another surgeon in the area um, who I think will take on this as a case, and he does a lot of innovative things, and hopefully he can help you. So like two hours later, the new surgeon comes in, and he's full of confidence and faith, and, and he's like, I think we can do this. I've got an innovative team, and we're going to work on you. We're going to do our very best. Your back is really, really bad. This is going to be complicated, but we'll do our best. He goes, but before I sign on to do this, he goes, I just want to hear your story. I want to know, Joe Anderson, the man, like, who are you before I work on you? He pulls up a chair, and... It, to ask me, like, tell me your story is the wrong thing to say. Because it was like a full hour where I'm telling him everything, how Jesus has changed my life, how he set me free from alcohol, he's restored my marriage, I'm showing him pictures of my kids. He's crying, I'm crying. This guy's not a believer, and he's just like all inspired. He's like, I'm going to do my very best on you. And the next day, I go in for surgery, and it was way more complicated than even they believed. And it had been a 16-hour surgery. And uh, after I finally woke up from the surgery, my surgeon was there to talk to me, and he shows me the x-ray of my back. There's a picture of it right here. Um, and you can see like, these, these white bars, those are permanently inside me. Uh, there's four metal bars and then 24 screws going up. Uh, 12 of my vertebrae are fused from like my pelvic area all the way up to like between my shoulder blades, just completely fused. And they used um, cadaver bone, like ground up into like a spackle to like re create some of my vertebrae. So it was miraculous what they did, but he was so giddy because he's like, I've never seen anyone do work like this. Like the amount of hardware that's in there, how complicated it is. I'm sending these images to my colleagues all around the United States and they're all blown away by this. I mean, I swear his, his mom has a picture of my x-ray on her refrigerator, you know? <laughs> he was so excited about it and uh, I wanted to tell him just to give glory to God. I go, um, I go, you know that uh, I'm a believer and like, through social media, there were thousands of people praying for me during surgery, and they were praying for you specifically as my surgeon. Now, you keep in mind, he's not a believer, and he paused, and he teared up. He goes, man, we could feel it in there. He goes, I could feel that. He goes, that was a long surgery. He goes, but there was one moment when I was going to get the metal bars for the support inside your spine, and they're titanium, and he goes, but I, I told the guy, take the titanium back and bring me cobalt bars because they're, they're stronger and they last longer. And he goes, this man's going to live a long and active life. And I thought, how cool is it that an unbelieving surgeon, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when people are praying, is going to speak life over me during a 16-hour surgery? And I give God all the glory for that, that he brought me through that. And then I start the, the recovery process. I'm in the hospital. My foot is in a cast. My leg is immobilized. I'm in a back brace. Um, they didn't know this at the time, but I, it was such a, a forceful um, accident 
having the seizure, you know, being all tense, it tore tendons in both of my shoulders. My pec muscles, this is super rare, uh, the, my lower pec, um, from holding on the steering wheel and bracing myself, it tore completely my pec muscle off my breastplate, bilateral tear, like those muscles are just gone. And so I'm in this like body brace through my torso, I'm in the, the hospital, and you would think that I would feel worse about my situation. Like I was so feeling abandoned the morning right before my accident. But this is where it's so cool how God works. I was filled with joy and peace beyond my circumstances, beyond my understanding. Because everyone kept telling me, every doctor, every nurse, everyone looked at the x-rays, everyone looked at the accident and said, you should be dead or paralyzed. And it's the, the, really the only near-death experience I've had in my life. And I always thought that if I had a near-death experience, that I would feel like, whew, dodged a bullet, or thank you, God, for sparing me. But that's not how I felt. I was filled with thankfulness that I was saved. That if I had died, I was going to heaven, without a doubt. I didn't want to leave my wife and kids, but I was okay with going to heaven. And I realized I didn't have to fear death. In fact, I didn't fear death. Because of Jesus Christ, I'm saved, and I have eternity. And then that was quickly followed with an overwhelming love for people. That I just wanted to share the love of Christ with every person. Every doctor, every nurse, they'd come into my room, and I would, I would talk to them. I mean, my, my hospital room turned into, like, Joe's counseling center. Like, nurses would come in and tell me about problems, and I'd pray with them, they'd cry. And it was like, I got more ministry done that next month than I have as a pastor. And God blessed me with so many amazing people. And, you know, one of the, the things that happened that just blew me away is here I am unemployed, no future that I can look to. We're in a far distant land where we don't have relationships. Over 100 people flew down to visit me. Friends came. They brought money. They came to pray for us. Um, and people started from different churches and friends. They started sending money. People we didn't even know were sending us money. Because my biggest concern was, I, want, I didn't want my kids to feel like God hung us out to dry. And they got to see firsthand every day how the body of Christ came together, that God was meeting our needs, providing for us, even while Dad was unemployed in the hospital. And one of the gifts that he gave me in that hospital was a, a brand new friendship with the physician assistant who ran the floor. This guy was outspoken, a strong leader. Everyone respected him. He was a strong believer. And he was a veteran in the military. I was a veteran in the Air Force. So we just had this like instant bond and friendship. And he would come into my, um, my room every morning with a cup of coffee and he'd sit and we'd talk for like 15 minutes. We just saw the world the same way. It was just, a, we became friends. And it was after about um, 24 days in the hospital, they were gonna do my neck surgery. And my surgeon, my surgeon said, this is how we're gonna do it. We're gonna cut open your throat in the front, pull everything to the side, and then go in and put a metal plate with six screws and fuse together three of the discs in your neck. And I was like, that sounds like a terrible idea. Like, shouldn't we? And he goes, oh, it happens all the time. Well, dude, he goes, the only risk, he was really safe, the only risk is your vocal cords could get damaged. You could lose your voice. And like fear entered my mind at that moment because I thought, I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher, I talk for a living. Like, if I lose my voice. And I shared that with uh, that PA. And when it came time for the surgery on my neck. The, the nurses and the orderlies, they came in there, they're wheeling me down the hallway. PA is at the other end of the hall. He sees that they're moving me to surgery. He yells at them to stop. He goes, stop right there. 
and he comes like running down and he goes, I need to pray for my brother before he goes into surgery. And all the people, you know, there's like eight people standing around. And you know like when people who don't pray, they don't know what to do. They're like, what do I do with my hands? You know, they're like, I close my eyes. Well, my, my, my new friend, he puts both hands on my, my chest and he starts praying a loud, bold prayer. I mean, he's pleading the blood of Jesus. By your stripes, you're healed. Cast all our cares and anxiety on you, Jesus, because you care for us. He's praying a loud, powerful prayer. And then he doubles down and starts praying a loud, Pentecostal, spirit-filled prayer, okay? Now, let's be honest. Normally, when there's an audience around that, that can get a little awkward and weird, but not when you're going to get your throat cut open. I was like, come on, bring it, bring it, bring it. And it's like the last thing you want when you're going into a surgery like that is like a, now we lay me down to sleep. If it's your will, God, if he lives or, you know, you want the fire. And so that meant so much to me, and I immediately was filled with courage and faith. Went into the like, three-and-a-half-hour surgery, came out of it just feeling like God had restored me. And so now I get to go home but I was still a mess. I'm in a back brace. Uh, my foot's in a cast. And my, I, my throat is still a little sore from the surgery. And I got to see the power of God working through my wife and kids as they cared for me, as they took care, from, took care of me. And my wife basically had to do the work of like a team of nurses. Um, she had to do everything for me because I was completely immobilized. I was like just a big baby. She was changing me, showering me, feeding me, wiping me, everything. And um, I just got to see her love being poured out in my life. I mean, there was one day that I thought she wanted to hurt me um, because she was, it was after a shower, like she was like all sweaty and wet and her sweatshirt's wet and her hair's wet and she's putting my clothes on and I'm really particular about my socks. Like I like my socks pulled up tight, straight, no wrinkles whatsoever. And uh, she's putting my socks on and I kind of looked down and one of them was like wrinkly and I just started pointing at it from my wheelchair and she's kneeling there and she looks up, she's like, what? I go, you can do better than that. I know, it's not, not the thing to say. And she looked up at me and she's like, have you seen the movie Misery? You know, I'm like, forgive me. You know? But I got to see day after day of God just restoring my, my body and my physical health. And every time I'd go to the doctor, they'd call me Miracle Man because they couldn't believe that I was alive, that I was walking, that I was recovering. And I believe that's just the power of God that he works through bad things for our good and for his glory. And I've seen that over and over again. One of the nights that as I was um, recovering at home, I would like sit in my wheelchair or sit in a chair as I was just beginning to learn how to walk again. And I, um, as a recovery guy, I knew there was never gonna be a moment that I was just gonna feel done with painkillers. I just knew that. There was never gonna be a moment where I said, I don't need these anymore. And so I had to quit before I became addicted. And so I quit taking the painkillers about two months, probably before I should have, which meant there were a lot of dark, painful nights, just kind of rocking back and forth saying, okay, God, get me through the night. And it was in one of those nights that I was praying and I was journaling and I was just trying to make sense of everything that we've been through in our family and even this, you know, how, do, how can I... How can I simplify Romans 8.28? How can I crystallize that and to share with others? And he gave me this simple formula equation. And it's just something that was very profound to me and hopefully meaning, meaningful to you. And it's sovereignty plus surrender equals re redemption. That God is sovereign, that he's all-powerful, he's all-good, he's all-loving, he's all-caring, he's all-knowing. And we're not God, but he is God. 
and that our part is to surrender to him completely, unconditionally, to trust him, to know that his ways are greater than our ways, and that no matter what, surrender to Jesus Christ and his plan, his purpose for our life, and that that equals redemption, that we see him turn things that were meant for bad, even mistakes that we've made, even sins that we've committed, that when we surrender to him, that he turns it around for our good and for his glory. And that Jesus does that. That's really the story of the gospel. That's a story of redemption throughout the entire Bible of how God will turn things around. And I think back to a moment in our family's story, in our life, and let me just say this. There's all those stories that I mentioned um, at the beginning. We wrote a book this summer that's very conversational. It gives all the details on every single one of those stories. And my wife and kids were all back in the, in the, the lobby afterwards. We'd love to see these are available there. But when I think about all the things that God has brought us through, I'm reminded of one just profound moment. And that was after we had our third miscarriage. Because my wife and I, we, you know, our marriage was still new and fragile after what we'd been through. My sobriety was really fragile. Um, I was just getting back into ministry. Like everything was so new, and, but we were so broken, so heartbroken after losing a third baby. And just emotionally, again, feeling like, are we cursed? Like, where's God in this? How, what's the answer? And God, even if there is an answer, I don't know if I want to hear it. We just want a baby. And I remember in the days following that, it was leading up to Sunday, and it was like the last place we wanted to go was church. Because there's that feeling you just kind of want to close the door and pull all your pain in on yourself. But we knew that our marriage wouldn't survive if we suffered in silence. We knew that I wasn't going to stay sober if I kept this in. I knew that, that we wouldn't have a future if we just became bitter with God and closed. So we're like, we're going to go to church. And it was hard because this was before social media, so people had to learn about your problems and your pain in real time. And we go to church even though we know it's going to be so hard and we're so heartbroken. We went in and we sat in the section we normally did. We did, and we just began to lift our hands and surrender and worship Jesus. Even though we didn't have answers and we didn't have understanding, we're sobbing and we're crying. And then one of the coolest things that's ever happened in my life happened. People that we were in small group with, we were in community with, who knew our story, got up from where they were, they saw us, and they began to move and like climb over chairs and come over and lay hands on us, hug us, weep with us, and pray for us as we worship Jesus. And that did something to our hearts. Our heart that could have been hard and hurt became soft before God and surrendered to him. And we walked out of church that day, and you gotta hear this. We didn't walk out of church with a baby in a bassinet. That wasn't the miracle. But we walked out of church with hope in our hearts, the hope of Jesus Christ. And it was a week later when we were invited to an adoption orientation. Because our hearts were soft and we were filled with hope, we said, yeah, we'll go. I don't know what God has for us, but we'll go. And that set off the course for the rest of our life. I know had we not had that moment of surrender, who knows what would have happened? Who knows how, how long our hearts would have been hard? And I want to give you an opportunity to have a moment today where you say, Jesus, here I am. I have something going on in my life that needs redemption, that needs to be turned around for good. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the solution is. But God, I know that you're, you are good, that you are sovereign, that you are in control. And my part is to surrender to you. And with every 
head up with every eye open because this is going to take an act of courage. If that's you, then I'd ask that you would stand up where you're at right now. Thank you. Thank you. I know there's others. If you're saying, I surrender, I'm trusting that Jesus can turn this from bad to good, that he will make a difference. Thank you. I just want to give a few more moments. Because it's not an easy thing to stand, but it really shouldn't be. I love what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10, right in there. Paul is praying that the thorn in his flesh would be taken away. And theologians have no idea what that is. Like there's like 50 different theories on what that thorn in his flesh could be. And I love that they don't know because we can apply that to our lives. And he's praying. He says he prays three times to Jesus that he'd be taken away. And then in red letters, Jesus responds to him and says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And then Paul's able to say, when I'm weak, I am strong. And you think about that, that whatever it is that you're going through in your life, that weakness, that if you allow him to, the same power that created the universe, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, that power is made perfect in your weakness. That is redemption. I want to give a moment just for anyone else who wants to stand, who says, I want to be in on this prayer. Thank you for standing. Thank you. And now we're going to do something. If everyone just look around, and if there's someone near you who's standing, if you'll just move to them and just put a hand on their shoulder, let's pray for those that are standing right now who took that step of faith and step of courage. I'm going to lead us in a prayer because you, you never have to stand alone. That this is a good church. This is the body of Christ and the hands and feet of Jesus that's those of us who are following him. And we lift up our brothers and sisters right now. Heavenly Father, we pray. We thank you in advance for what you're going to do in their lives. We thank you, God, that you don't leave us or forsake us, that you see the pain that every individual has been going through, that you know exactly what they are facing. You know exactly why they stood. And God, I thank you that we don't have to have all the answers, but we can turn to you and that in faith pray that they would be made well, that the darkness over them would be broken in the name of Jesus, that the enemy would have no hold on their lives, that we bind the enemy in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, that they'd be set free, that they would be redeemed. God, that you would take what the enemy has meant for harm and that you would turn it around and use it for good. God, that everything that has been set against them, even, even the problems and the sins that they've committed, God, would be turned for good. God, you redeem. You're a good God. You're a loving God. And we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, that would, where he would redeem us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. We give you all the glory and praise for what you're going to do in these individuals' lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.